he really was this you know visionary and uh, you know a real dreamer and um he wrote you know poetry and 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 had a really elaborate creative mind that i think kind of got lost with his auntie um because she was you know a very strong woman and, and you know it's always you know, taught him to be a well-mannered boy uh but you know it kept him really sort of safe and protected so she was quite strict um but until he met his mother who really influenced uh you know the sort of musical instrument and taught him how to play banjo and was this sort of real free spirit and you know expressed her feelings and and i think he until then really kept it kind of closed up um and in, until he met his mother who he somehow was able to sort of you know really open those sort of um, those elaborate thoughts This week's one there is Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. So we're going to start with a little bit of rumor mill. We don't know whether it's true, but I've heard it from a couple of sources. Apparently, uh, the Lennon Estate and the good folks at UME are having a disagreement over the sometime in New York City box. Apparently, there's some music on there they're concerned about. But that's it. I'll tell you the story of how it came about. In 1969, I put it on the cover of the single so as it helps explain it a bit. Yoko did an interview with the woman about the woman's problem, and I didn't have anything to do with it. And then I noticed the cover, it was called Nova, it's an English woman's magazine like McCall's or something like that. As, as like everybody else, we talked more and more about it. In the last two years, it became more of a thing, and I had to, you know, find out about myself and my attitude to women. Apparently, we'll keep saying apparently, because it is apparently, we have no confirmation of this yet. Right. They submitted the box for release and you and me said nope we'd like you to remove one song and of course you remove the single that changes the complete context of the record right not to mention that this is a deluxe edition where i'm sure it's not just one copy of the song it's <laughs> at least five or six you're gonna have to have the demo and the original you know different lyrics and that sort of thing but the whole point even at the time, was controversial. And it was meant to be controversial. So now, 50 years later, it's still controversial, but I can't imagine you would remove it from the set. Hopefully this is all just posturing by both sides, but you will notice that, let's say before about two weeks ago, if you went to sometime in newyorkcity.com, you would get to a page which said the sometime in New York City box is in final stages and will be released late spring, early summer. Well, we're almost into the spring. We would be hearing something if late spring, early summer were still on the cards. And if you go to the page today, it takes you back to the Lennon discography, the page for sometime in New York City, and mentions nothing about a deluxe edition box. Right. Well, I guess they didn't get too far along. They would have 
printed up thousands and thousands of boxes to put out and oh never mind yeah i don't think they got that far but i i do think they were probably to the finalization stage would be my guess you would think this conversation would take place while they were sitting in the studio remixing <laughs> it's like okay it's in your face now what are you gonna do i mean the lennon estate sean in particular knowing what we know about sean would say full speed ahead we're doing what the original idea was but you and me that's a whole different beast particularly when you consider that these executives had nothing to do and really no lineage to the original execs who approved sometime in new york city right it's not the same company it's not any of the same ownership it's just completely different and it's a matter of ownership that's the news for the week let's just hope that they can come to some sort of agreement on this and that agreement does include a release with that song on it. Right. They're not going to be making huge numbers of dollars off of a sometime in New York City box set. Yeah, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> Which, unfortunately, is why they can probably sit around and dawdle and argue about this. Right, but they'll miss the 50th if they don't get it out soon. <laughs> not that the 50th means anything, considering Imagine came out on the 47th anniversary and <laughs> Plastic Ono Band came out on the 51st. Okay. What we decided to talk about this week, if you remember last week, we didn't know what we were talking about. (laughs) Well, that's pretty much the case all along. Indeed. We decided to look at some Lennon biopics, which, at least here in the States, both came out in 2010 for John's 70th birthday. Yes. And, you know, there are a lot of people who don't know these two films. So if if you don't know them, I, I would say starting off, they're both worth checking out. They're on the higher end of Lennon biopics in both cases. And it's actually really nice the way that these things work. If you wanted to piece together the story, you can start with Nowhere Boy, which takes us roughly from 57 to 60. And then you can go to Backbeat, which takes us from 60 to about 63. There you go. And then you can go into Hours in the Times, which covers an event in late 63. You're putting together a film festival here. We're not going to talk about all of these, but I'm saying (laughs) it's it's interesting how they do all fit together. And then Lennon Naked, which was a BBC film, picks up in 64 and then covers mostly 67 to 1970. Right. Well, 71. Right. They pick a very particular end point for the film. So, yeah, you, you have a complete narrative. Now, how true it is is a different matter, but at least it is a complete narrative. And for the two films that we're talking about, they actually fit together reasonably well. They, they tell more or less an evolution of John Lennon from the restless teenager through to the man at the end of The Beatles. Right. We start out with Nowhere Boy. The opening of the film, we see young John Lennon and his friend Pete Shotton Riding to school on their bicycles. Yes, as a young lad. They pass somebody who John points out as being Tarbuck. Now, Jimmy Tarbuck was a classmate of John Lennon's. Since making his television debut on Sunday night at the London Palladium in 1963, Jimmy Tarbuck has become one of the icons of British light entertainment, with his soft Liverpudlian lilt and cheeky chappy sense of humour. Often described as the fifth Beatle, Jimmy was one of the leading products of the Merseyside explosion during the early 60s. I wouldn't have thought a fellow I was at school with would become one of the most famous people in the world. And that's what they were. John Lennon, you mean? Yes, yes. Lennon. Yeah, yes. But along with uh, the Pope, uh, uh, the Queen. <laughs> no, who, who, who are the famous people? Yeah, Dalai yeah. Lama, yeah, the yeah. President of America. Yeah. You put them in there, mm. the Beatles. Everybody wanted to meet them. And that, and... Uh, He was a funny fella, Lennon. Always late at school. (laughs) Pop Evans was the headmaster. Lennon, you're late. He said, what time is it, sir? He said, it's quarter past nine. He said, but you're late too. Uh (laughs) He was that. He always had an answer. They got to do that name drop. (laughs) Right. Kind of puts him in a place. Liverpool's a happening thing. I mean, within Liverpool, not to the rest of England. Exactly. And we get a little bit of the feel for what it was like for John attending Quarry Bank. Here's his best friend. You know, here's some of the other people. Here are the girls he's just starting to notice. And, well, John finds a way to get himself into trouble. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> he goes to the headmaster, whose name is actually Pop Joy, but the credits, for some reason, have turned that B into a P. He's Pop Joy there. It sounded like a Leninism. But I don't think that's what they were doing. <laughs> right. Someone had just written down the wrong thing. Although they, they do a good job in actually mentioning at least every important figure in John's young life at that point in time. Yeah. Normally, with these sorts of films, they will combine people and events. Here, everybody is pretty much unique. Yes. And the film kind of centers him in what everybody thinks of as Mimi's house. Mendips. Right. But it also includes John's Uncle George, who they had a, a good relationship. Now, of course, in real life, Uncle George had died several years earlier. I guess John was about... 12 or 13 when Uncle George passed? Yeah, something like that. The way it's shown in the film, they compress everything for time. John comes home from school. His uncle gives him a harmonica, helps him put the radio speaker set up in his room, and then dies. Right. All in one scene. (laughs) Right. But you get an idea that it was a pleasant relationship for John. And Uncle George dying had an effect on him. Now, one thing I didn't mention, which shows up in both films, they couldn't resist doing little Beatleisms. The beginning of Nowhere Boy is John in the school corridor running away from imaginary girls with screams and, and the Hard Day's Night chord comes up. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we get what you're doing. <laughs> and then at, at the opening of Lennon Naked, you see Lennon and Brian trampling down a staircase in a manner rather suspiciously similar to the Can't Buy Me Love sequence. Right. The filmmakers going, we'll do a little clever bit here. Yeah, I don't know how clever that is, though. (laughs) I mean, you know, for the general audience, but for the Beatle people, it's just kind of eye-rolling. Well, you know, rarely do we really get a film for Beatle people other than Get Back. (laughs) (laughs) So then about eight to ten minutes in the film, we're introduced to John's cousin, Stanley Parks, Stanley Parks is probably the most famous of the Beatle cousins that are out there, even more famous than Paul's cousins who are actually famous. Because whenever anyone does one of these picks, uh, there's another film which supposes that John Lennon had lived and uh, went off to live in the wilds of Canada and someone did a Blair Witch-style project film discovering that Lennon was actually alive. And, well, he was living with his cousin Stanley. I don't know that one. <laughs> if I'm going to prove to you that it is John Lennon. Oh my God, it is not John Lennon. Hi there. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Tim, and uh, we're shooting a little documentary for film school about the changing... have been asking around here about us? We've been asking questions about everybody because we're trying to, you know, find out about how the old girls... We're not interested, all right, we're not interested. Well, is there anybody else who'd, who'd like to... No, there is not. Piss off, will you? Piss off. Get out of this property. It wasn't a big film, but it, was... <laughs> it makes me laugh. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and that film, too, is filled with little Beatlesms. Maybe we'll cover it sometime in the future. We've, we've got a couple other films that we do want to talk about that are not Beatle proper films. We learn that, at least in the film's timeline, John and Julia did not know each other. Well, in real life, I don't know how close they were as John was growing up, but they certainly knew each other. Well, there there came a time when he became aware that she lived relatively close. But from what I've read, the relationship between the Stanley sisters was pretty close. So I can't imagine that she was just gone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's not as the film depicts. They were very alike. In personality, my mother absolutely adored John. I mean, it's reciprocated, of course. But um, I'm actually in the process of writing a little synopsis for a book that Cynthia and I are getting together to expand our books, finally and at last. I'm going to go and stay with her and we'll get it done. And I've been digging up quotes of my own and I found a lovely one from John to say, it's very important for me that people know I actually had a mother. She just had, um, she'd been through some bad times, that's all. 
She lived down the road and I saw her all the time. And that is the truth from John. All this about he never saw his mother and it's just absolute nonsense. It just is not true. There are two books that this really seems to be based on. Julia, John's sister's book, and then Pete Shotton's book. Which is weird because Julia was never really happy at the way her mother was presented. I wouldn't be real happy at the way that she was presented in this film either, to be honest with you. Well, there are certain incidents uh, that I would say, ooh, that's kind of creepy. Um, There's the whole Oedipal thing, which really seems to be taken from a single entry in one of John's audio diaries from the 70s. Yeah. Just, I was just remembering the time when I had my hand on my mother's chip in number one, Blomfield Road, in, uh, off Mather Avenue, near Garston. That's when I was about 14, took a day off school, I was always doing that and hanging out in their house. I was lying on the bed and I was thinking, I wonder if I should uh, do anything else. And, and it was a strange moment. They build that up in the film and uh, they even make a cut, which is rather unfortunate. Well, you know, some of these things have to be built on a certain salaciousness just to pique interest. Ooh, really? They did that? So at least as far as the film is concerned, Julia comes back into John's life at Uncle George's funeral. Right. And it could be really that before then, he wasn't really aware of where she lived. And as he got older and more independent, she was located in his mind and he could travel over there. But as I said, I just can't imagine that she wasn't part of the sisters scene. Well, we, we know she was. I mean, we right. see the pictures of, of the five Stanley sisters together. And I mean, you may be more right in that she spent a long time living in the parents' home. That was part of why Mimi was allowed to take John. Right. They didn't have a proper living space. Stanley takes John over to his mother. Oh, well, you should call her mom. You know, I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> right. The next scene shows them going down to Blackpool. There are some controversy as to what happened there, but certainly the way John wrote about it, the whole mama don't go and daddy come home and it had an effect on him. So it was certainly a deal. Yeah. It probably isn't the way that we've all been told it is, but they're really sort of having a good time. She's living up to her reputation as the fun aunt. Uh, <laughs> right. As she was described in Julia's book and in several other places. And the way Paul describes her too, it matches reasonably well up with the characterization here. Witty, sense of humor, liked music saying yeah you know and i learned what an eccles cake is i didn't know what an eccles cake is and i looked it up after a bit of dialogue here in the film <laughs> do you want to explain what it is it's a small round pie I, I it seems to be closer in nature to the fried pies that we have in this country an eccles cake is a small round cake filled with currants and made from flaky pastry with butter sometimes topped with dinarara sugar Eccles cakes are named after the English town of Eccles. It is not known who invented the recipe, but James Birch is credited with being the first person to sell Eccles cakes commercially, which he sold from his shop at the corner of the Carriage Road and St. Mary's Road, now Church Street, in the town center in 1793. Although they have both a savory and a sweet version of them. Right. When I read that, I thought of empanadas. That's another one, which is very similar, yes. There could be meat in them. Any of a number of ingredients inside of them. So next, Julia tells John to not tell Mimi that he came over. Again, I think that's more for the film than it is uh, reflecting reality. Right. You know, Mimi may not have wanted John to spend that much time with his mother, but I'm sorry. Mimi is characterized for the most part as a bitch who can act nice occasionally through this film. Now, I mean, you know, Mimi was stern, but Paul himself has said that's not the way Mimi was in real life. I would agree with that. It strikes me really that the problem perhaps with Julia was that she didn't conform to the norms of the day. She wasn't proper might be the right word. And, and I think Mimi was kind of that person. She wanted things proper. Yes. We don't get the other side of John Lennon. In this film, while he was 
outgoing and and he wanted to make music and he wanted to have fun. He was also industrious and he was studious. He would read what he wanted to read, including the whole library and all of the newspaper every day. He wasn't just the ruffian going out and fighting around with his friends. And he learned what he wanted to learn. Yes. It was not considered a great student, but clearly intelligent and became pretty well read. Then the next scene, we see one of the more famous bits of Liverpool lore characterized. A, we see John stealing some 45s. Those must have been some big trousers if he could fit half a dozen 45s into them and walk out of the store. Oh, it's probably easier than you think. (laughs) I will assume that that you know better than I do on that. That's possible. We see him walking along the docks, chucking these jazz records into the water because, well, he didn't want any jazz. (laughs) I've I've been trying to avoid it my whole life. (laughs) One of the infamous Kernard Yanks comes along and says, you know, Somebody will want that music. Here, I'll trade you. I'll swap you for it. And what he gets in return is screaming Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you. Yeah. And and that's a crazy record. I mean, uh, when that came out, it just had a sound that wasn't like anything else. Then another scene, which various people have said never actually happened. John did not climb up on the top of a bus and ride the top of buses. He could afford bus fare. <laughs> right he goes home and he plays the record at julia's house of course mimi would not stand for such a thing of course not and he clearly revels in the whole rock and roll thing there's one or two other instances but here's where the biggest of the edible scenes comes into play and it's cl- a clear reference to uh john's uh, memory from his diary about uh, lying out on the couch with his with his mother on top of him and well yeah. <laughs> that's what's reflected here. Yeah. And anytime that sort of thing comes up, it's it's uncomfortable. And then Sam Taylor Wood makes the implication clear as it cuts to a scene of John fingering a person. And for just a second, you think, no, they're not doing that. <laughs> right. So uh, there are two girls which seem to follow John and Pete and then later the rest of the band around throughout the entirety of the film. This is where we're introduced to them. There, there's a blonde girl and there's a brunette girl named Marie with a red scarf. Right. And it never should be forgotten that sex was a big part of the Beatles and John's whole interest in that. He liked pulling the girls. <laughs> As Paul will tell you anytime he's given the chance. Yes. All four of them. Basically. But that was rock and roll in general. I mean, you know, certainly before there was this, oh, we'll make a lot of money doing this. It's like, we're going to do this because that's the way to pull the girls. <laughs> right. I think John, he saw the, the film of all the girls screaming at Elvis, and he thought, that's a good job. And they also do a version of that here, except it's John with Julia sitting in the theater. <laughs> right. Now we're roughly a half hour into the film. John gets himself suspended again. We are introduced to uh, Michael Fishwick, who was a real person. Mimi took boarders in at Mendips after George died to help pay the bills. Right. I'm a little bit surprised that they left with the implication without making it explicit. It's more or less been confirmed that Mimi and Fishwick were more than landlord and student living in the house. Oh my God, yellow journalism. (laughs) Um, Well, that's interesting. (laughs) Some books have gone so far as to say that Mimi and George never actually consummated their marriage. That Mimi was still a virgin when... Now, I don't know how anybody would know that or would would deign to prove that, but it has been written. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. I will take that rumor as being less than the sometime in New York City rumor. I hope that book had footnotes because I don't know where they would get that kind of information. Even the one about Mimi and Fishwick. Although, if so, I'm thinking, you go, Mimi. Well, I mean, some of that came out of Sister Julia's book. Right. Well, there's your footnote. Fishwick is introduced into the film. John has a nice line. Michael, how's things? Uh, not bad, John, yourself. Well, thank you. How's school? You mean university? Well, same thing. Biochemistry, right? What's that mean you'll be when you grow up? Well, a biochemist, I hope. Really? Oh, you must be so excited. See you, Fishy. 
stay out of trouble, lad. Cheers, pal. As someone who spent more years than they should have studying biochemistry at university, it's like, yeah, you tell me, John, what does that mean when I grow up? Now, granted, that was in the 50s, but it's like, yep. Thank you, John. You've been dissed. Life imitates art, imitates life. <laughs> right. Since John has been suspended, he says, can I spend some time with you, meaning his mom? Do you fancy the ferry over to New Brighton tomorrow? The fur's on. What about school? I've been suspended. Me and Pete. Oh, John. What for? Showing pornography to an old lady on a bus. <laughs> You've not told Mimi, have you? There's no point going to her bollocks if you don't have to. Why? She has to go through yours. Well, I never asked her to, did I? He intercepts the letter. He convinces Mimi that he's going off to school every day, and he heads over to Julia's. If there was some sort of agreement that John wouldn't be that involved in Julia's life, then that might have needed to be kept on the down low. I think this is probably more the film than real life. <laughs> now, if you're here, you might as well learn something. Your turn. Uh, section here where Julia teaches John how to play the banjo. Right. I really like how they did that. John is filmed learning the banjo in real time and everything in the background just sort of speeds up behind him. Yeah. He, he's sitting there learning to play and, and time passage is indicated by you see the kids waking up, the kids going back to bed, you see dinner being served and so on and so forth. And then by the end of it, well, John knows how to play the banjo. Which is what he played when he met Paul. You know, yep. he played banjo chords yep although he did have the guitar by then yes but in some way he continued to play banjo chords i mean a lot of what he played on the guitar in the beatles was influenced by his playing banjo first well i mean even like you know the strumming on all my loving the triplets that comes straight out banjo exactly that was a nice bit of the film and so eventually they phone up mimi and tell him john can come back to school now it's like what? <laughs> so she storms over to Julia's house and they have the first of several rather loud arguments that they have during the course of this film. Again, in a bit of, well, okay, we're just going to condense a bunch of events because we want them all to come at the same point in time. Mimi's like, she's going to hurt you. You know that, don't you? And John's response is, I'm going to start a rock and roll group. And then they change history again. In real life, John got the Galatone champion. It was Julia who bought it for him. And she bought it out of a newspaper advertisement. Whereas in the film, they have Mimi taking John down to buy it in, in the shop. And I think the only reason they did that is they could think of no other way to get the guaranteed not to split line in there. That was the thing about that guitar. This was a Galatone champion acoustic guitar made by the Gallo Company of South Africa. It was guaranteed not to split. Julia Lennon allowed her son's new guitar to be delivered to her house rather than that of disapproving Aunt Mimi. That information about the guaranteed not to split, John talks about his guitar, and I'm trying to think. It was printed on the label that was on the inside of the thing. Right. Yeah, we've seen other models from the same era. That was their big thing. I, I believe Hunter Davies actually was the first to report the price as being about 10 pounds. In order to soften Mimi ever so slightly, it's, it's Mimi here, and she negotiates it down to about eight pounds. <laughs> then we move on to the Walton fate, and that is well presented here. Yeah, and I think that part of that is because it's a well-documented scene. We know what Paul played. We know that Ivan Vaughn introduced them. There's a lot about that point 
that has been written. And so therefore it's easier to create the scene, but they do it really well. Here they took the opportunity to remove some of the drama. The, the point was that John didn't know that Mimi was going to be coming to the fate. John's aunt Mimi was at the fate, and John adapted the words of another song, especially for her, as Colin Hall remembers. There was a tent selling tea and cakes. Aunt Mimi was standing inside the tent when she heard the sound of a skiffle group wafting over the air and uh, or through the air and uh, she came out to see John resplendent on the stage in his uh, blue check shirt that his mother Julia uh, had bought for him and of course uh, John saw her coming uh, to hear him and began to change the words to a song saying oh oh here comes Mimi or, or words to that effect. As Paul remembers it <laughs> John started singing lyrics about Mimi coming down the path. This right, she changes the lyrics, and I kind of wish they found a way to to work in the Dell Vikings. I was listening to how he was singing it, and also the words, which weren't the words to come go with me. He was making them up, and he was making come, 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 go with me down to the penitentiary. <laughs> I was going, well, you know, that's kind of bluesy, you know. They're not the words. That's not, you know. I was thinking, that's, that's enterprising. Come go with me, down, down, down to the penitentiary. That would have been easy to do. Either they didn't know it or chose something else. Just because they wanted to repeat the Maggie May thing, make yeah. it their through line through the film. Right. They do follow history. Paul demonstrates 20 Flight Rock. John holds in his surprise at, at how good Paul actually is and, and kind of says, yeah, we'll talk. Although it's not John Lennon, I wouldn't have minded if they changed it and had it be John riding his bike around the next day and kind of said, you know, hey, we talked it over if you want to join the group. Whereas in real life, it was Pete Shotton. Right. But they didn't do that either. Uh, you said he kind of withheld his surprise about Paul's. I think that's the whole thing. He played it totally cool. He wasn't going to look impressed. The line there is, I'd rather have him in our band than in anybody else's. It wasn't Pete, so it's one of the other quarrymen. He says that to John, and John just sort of looks at him like, yeah, well, maybe you're right. So in the next scene, Paul has joined the quarrymen, and we see the Beatles start to evolve. We see the John and Paul relationship growing. We, we see recreations of famous quarrymen early shows, the white suits and the, the bolo ties. I think it was around right here that my favorite... <laughs> A lot of the film, actually, is when Mimi's sitting and knock off the door and goes to the door and there's Paul. And she calls up, John, your little friend's here. <laughs> Which, of course, is a real line. John, John's remembered that line. And right. That, it comes out in interviews. So Right. It's, it's just perfect. I remember particularly singing Blue Moon, Elvis song, which on the Elvis record, he's going, Blue lovely tape echo so we always used to try and find rooms it often used to be lavatories had a very good acoustic but this little front vestibule was fantastic and i remember us often there learning our songs there with aunt mimi sort of saying you know john what are you doing with your little friend then it goes on the guitar boogie bit but they don't show paul messing it up that's the real story of why why he never played lead again was because, well, I can't play lead live. I get these sticky fingers. They show him playing it perfectly here. Right. They do show the chemistry between them. You know, John and Paul both go up to the mic and say thank you to the audience. Then the next scene is something we're familiar with. George playing raunchy on the top of the bus. And his sense of humor is illustrated. So this is George. He's a mate of mine. He should be in the group. It should be in bed. No, I've been to bed. Couldn't sleep. Go on, George, show him. What? Magic tricks? No, I've left myself out of home. Dad, 
<laughs> and you know, not a fall down kind of laugh, but you figure that John is 16 and George is 14. That's kind of a leap at that age. It's impressive that George is kind of like, no, fuck you. Well, it's the same sort of balls, which a couple of years later, I don't like your tie. Right. Exactly. John and George's humor is similar and was before they really met. Yeah, absolutely. Then we get another show. We get them playing uh, in black suits at something which is supposed to be at least reasonably big. There's a crowd there, probably a much bigger crowd than they ever would have gotten. And there's what I would guess is a subplot which probably just got cut after the show. They're hanging out backstage and John goes off for a ciggy and Paul goes up to him and says, if you don't want her hanging around the band, do something about it. It's like, how does this have anything to do with the rest of the film? Yeah. So maybe there was a, a little bit of something that they cut there. If you don't want to hang it around the band, do something about it. And that line didn't even need to be there. So The whole point of it was really more sex backstage with the quarrymen. Girls were already starting to approach John. Then we get to a party for John's. I guess this would have been his 18th. Is it? The soundtrack is Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. Well... That would have been like 56, 57, so that would have made John 16. The timeline is hard because, well, the actor changes very little because obviously it was filmed roughly the same. They didn't do much with the makeup on anybody to age them up or down. Throughout the whole film, they basically all look the same age. Anyway, it was a birthday party for John, and Paul's playing Love Me Tender to Julia, and John and Paul get into an argument here. A rather biting line. For my darling, I love you. And I always That was for her, wasn't it? Your mum. It was awful. Taken away from you. It's not fair. She had cancer. What's your excuse? by that line and you know i know we're not quoting history but that line means that already he's bitter about her not being there so if she was always there you know i'm not not sure exactly what's happening with the character (laughs) it's hard it's like there's a character that is the real person and there's everything in between right again in a we're gonna throw a bunch of stuff together john breaks the washboard over pete's head which we know actually happened Uh, nice line Oh, so. Worth a few bob and we're famous. He's all right. <laughs> Save that. It'll be worth a few bob when we're famous. And of course he didn't. But Then there's this big, long discussion. When John returns home, Julia comes over and they say, where's Alf? John knew where Alf was. He did. He knew he wasn't there at in Liverpool, but he, he knew that he was overseas. He knew he was a seaman. He, you know, he didn't know, know his father, but he knew who he was and at least where he was. This is a bit of drama for drama's sake, I think. Yeah. When we get into Lennon Naked, they do make some comments, and we do know that Alf actually did pretty much on a monthly basis send something, a little bit of money, certainly letters to John, and Mimi never passed any of them along. Right. It was that kind of family. I'm having some of the same confusion you are about what's going on with the character, and then how does that relate to what actually happened to John Lennon? (laughs) Right. It's confusing. The relationships are not cut and dried, and they don't fit necessarily into the narrative that we've all had. Even with the narrative we now know, taking Lewison as... More or less gospel. Obviously, he's made some mistakes as well, but I think we can reasonably trust what he's told us. We've all made some mistakes, Ed. (laughs) This is true. Uh, The film throws in Mimi buying John a Hoffner. Now, of course, John did get a a Club 40 right around this time. Although, I guess because they'd already used that scene, they didn't want a repeat. That was the one where Mimi and John actually went down to Hesse's and negotiated the price and signed up on a never never plan as john liked to call it right 
but I think this may be a little bit early for that. Again, because, well, they're not telling us exactly when we're talking about here. You're talking about a bunch of years that you have to compress into 90 minutes. Certainly things don't necessarily fit a chronological thing. So you just have to figure what is the point they're making and, you know, the idea that Mimi bought him a guitar. And so Julia and Mimi have a big fight and they tell John about Julia's other child, Ingrid, which, of course, in real life, he didn't learn about until 65 or so. Yeah, well, that was inconvenient. Your mother has always needed company. Do you understand what I mean by company? Rock and roll, eh, Mom? And she found it with a young soldier whilst your father was away at sea. You have another sister, Victoria. Where is she? Where? We don't know. Salvation Army took her. Then after that, your mother decides to shack up with another fancy man, Bobby. Still married to your father, I might add. And then bring you up as if that was acceptable, as if that was normal. When your father came home after the war, he wanted to try and save the marriage. But she'd have none of it. She told him to get lost. So he clearly didn't learn about Ingrid from Julia. Yes, exactly. It's a... It... <sighs> Really, it's a family full of secrets. I guess that's what we can really take from the reality of what they're demonstrating here. And and in the film, they've just, you know, niced it up so they can tell their story. Yeah. So at the end of this fight, John gets drunk and leaves the house and conveniently ends up outside the cavern. (laughs) Although the quarrymen had actually played the cavern by that point. That was the early days where, between jazz sets, where they had to introduce rock and roll records as... uh, jazz records there was another blackpool scene in there the whole who do you want to be with it is the representation of the event lewison got to most of the bottom of it but he's still not even sure exactly what happened there but what he's certain of is that alf was maybe planning to send for john later but he was not going to take John with them and take him away at that point in time. The infamous conversation certainly didn't happen in that way. Right. But if, if John was five, by the time this story became important or, or known, you know, Julia was dead and John was remembering a, an event that happened when he was five. It's not that he couldn't remember it necessarily, but he may not have interpreted it things the way they really were. He was looking at it from a five-year-old perspective. Yeah, we're into act three, so everything has to kind of get settled for the end of the film here. John and Mimi have a talk at the cemetery. Did you love him? Oh, you frightened me to death. Right place for it. Did you? That's a horrible thing to say. You never showed it. You just didn't see it. One of my favorite lines of the film. In my eyesight, possibly. <laughs> and then in a very script writerly line. Well, you know, there's no point in hating someone you love. You really love. It's like. Uh, so, you know, the cemetery talk with Mimi, you haven't explained to who, who they're talking about. They're at Uncle George's grave. Right. Which, I mean, also kind of links back to the was it a marriage of convenience because there were a lot of reasons why being a single at that age at that time during the war was not a good thing you know it's certainly possible george was older uh uncle george had issues it's a reason why rumors like that might start about their relationship so that of course leads to the grand reunion between julia and mimi i'm not gonna hold it against her she did in Blackpool. Oh, forgive and forget, I suppose. Forget? I wish. There's just no point hating someone you love. I mean, really love. Is there, Mimi? I should move out. What? The house seems a bit crowded all of a sudden. And who knows, with me gone, maybe you and Mum might remember you were sisters once. Please. 
well, we get it. Yeah, you know, but it's that illustration of a family of secrets and how that affects relationships. You know, clearly Julia was known, came to the Stanley family things, but her behavior, I guess, caused friction and the reflection of reality isn't quite there. They're making a right. film. Yeah, exactly. So they get together at this cafe and Julia has ordered tea for them. And, and Mimi says, well, do you have any Earl Grey? And the, and the waitress. You're confusing us with Buckingham Palace, love. It's easily done. <laughs> right. <laughs> then we see Julia and Mimi together, sunning out in the garden. John has moved off. Uh, he's, now living with a stew in town in the beatnik horror as it was. Right. And so he comes back and then we get another one of those really nice John and Paul scenes, uh, writing hello, little girl. And then while that happens, well, Julia's accident happens and, and they, it, that is staged very well. That is staged pretty much according to how it's been told by, this is one of the instances where it's really nice that they, got a big cast and they represented everybody by an individual actor. The, the Nigel Wally actor is the one that we'd seen earlier with the quarryman. <laughs> is John at home, Mrs. Lennon? Of course. I'm seeing him later, though. Tell him I've got a new booking. You know the Stanley Abattoir Social Club? Oh, not there. Why not? You'll get slaughtered. It was Nigel Wally who rode up and was looking for John and Julia said, well, you know, no, no he's not here, but you can escort me to the bus stop. Right. And, well, Julia got hit by a drunk off-duty police officer. I've heard that he was not drunk. And- I don't know if you've seen that intersection. That's a dangerous intersection. To this day, it's a dangerous intersection. I could very easily see how an accident might have happened. So he might not have been drunk. It could still happen. Then we get what is one of my big... I don't like this changings of history in the film. What they show is they show Twitchy handing John an envelope. Oh, your mom was saving this to you. And they use that as the money to record. That'll be the day in spite of all the danger. (laughs) That's not the way that happened. They had recorded it three days before Julia was hit by the car. They didn't have the record back. Julia never got to hear the record, but it had all been done. That'll be the day. Say goodbye, yeah, that'll be the day When you make me cry, I you say you're gonna leave You know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day When I die, well, you give me all your loving And your little loving And all your hugs and kisses And your money too You know you love me, baby Until you tell me, baby That someday we'll all be Well, that'll be the day When you make me cry, I The film is trying to make this point, oh, you can only do this because your mother was killed. Forever supportive she was, and she financed his career. I don't like that. That's the one thing in this film that pees me off just a little bit. Yeah, it didn't need to be there for sure, since it wasn't historically accurate, and they could have been just shown recording. If they just changed it so they get the record, maybe after the hell of a little girl scene, you have them picking up the acetate and coming back and having John learn it then. It's still not historically accurate, but it's much closer. The drama still holds. They've really sort of made the first step of this ladder that they're going to ascend that, that Julia wanted so badly, but she never got to experience any of it, really. Well, I think they wanted the drama of John singing in spite of all the danger it's the virtually the whole song 
and he just sings it in this determined eyes full of tears kind of thing and yet angry and so they needed that then the film ends with john as he's leaving for hamburg and as was actually the case he had to get a copy of his birth certificate although in the film they have mimi just sort of whipping it out whereas (laughs) in real life they had to uh, go on quite an expedition for it right but they did find it, and John did get his passport expedited, and, well, he made it to Germany. And I also don't believe the, the little postscript we get here. John called Mimi as soon as he arrived in Hamburg, and every week thereafter for the rest of his life. He called her frequently. Every week? I don't believe that. Particularly since we know there were weeks in India where he had no telephone. <laughs> right. He had Yoko Collar. <laughs> there you go. I guess it was more dramatic to say it that way than to go... And he called her frequently. <laughs> he called her every Mother's Day. I would have said something about the house. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, you know, this film ends on the day that John's going off to Hamburg and Backbeat starts the next day. Basically. And so in the narrative, you just start up with uh, Backbeat. And John looks different all of a sudden. <laughs> right. It's kind of that Bob Dylan film that, you know, they had like five different actors playing Bob Dylan. I'm Not There is Todd Haynes's quasi-biopic on the musician Bob Dylan. And as the opening caption states, it's inspired by the music and many lives of Bob Dylan. It's less about his life and what we know about him and more about what we don't know about him. In I'm Not There, you actually have six different actors portraying Bob Dylan. And they're not necessarily portraying biographical details in Bob Dylan's life. They're portraying the sort of myth and the things that influenced his music. I still think that if somebody's going to do it, the way to do the Beatles story is to do it like they did The Crown, where, you know, every couple of years you just change actors and change bits and pieces. Well, the whole, uh, you know, streaming thing is, is so cool that, now you could really do it. You know, I don't think a, a two-hour Beatle film would really get it. And so I, I like that idea. Just a long series and occasionally you change the actors. The Elton film, that didn't even really do justice. The thing about that is you're going to end up compressing, particularly if you go to anywhere near the present day. If you're going to go to 1980, you're going to end up compressing the last 10 years into the final episode. <laughs> you could do so much on the rise of Beatlemania. And then there's a whole other period where they just kind of live in the fame. And then you get into the whole revolver, them as recording artists. So you couldn't do it in a two hour film. Well, and someone could easily do a drama on what was also going on during Get Back. Yeah. You know, we've got, we've got those 30 days, you know, get back doesn't mention the business of George and his relationship with Patty and and what was going on with that. And I would start it with the 24 hour session mixing the white album because the next day John and Yoko get busted. And then you have to go through, of course, the tragic miscarriage and the rock and roll circus. And then you get into get back itself because all that had a huge impact on the get back sessions which part of john's life do you think is the hardest to dramatize i mean we've seen a bunch of bad films about john lennon during the beale years john lennon in my life the john and yoko a love story it's really easy to do it poorly yes if we're going to do it the way that we're discussing it you know crown style where you do a season and then you do a next season and you change your actors then you can change everything. You can also change directors and you can do it in you know massively different styles. Oh yeah. Whoever plays John as a Beatle, when he comes out of that and with cold turkey and everything kind of takes off, that's a whole nother actor. <laughs> then we're just going to egg on all the Paul is dead people. End an episode with Paul's moped accent, start the next one up with a different actor playing Paul. <laughs> that's great. That's great. And have John react like, you write good. (laughs) That's the way I would do it. But well, I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. There's lots of ways to represent a fictional John Lennon. I'd be fascinated to see something about how he went from being 
a Beatle to after that, his songwriting changed. He wasn't writing pop songs anymore. He was writing manifestos. And when he did write a love song, it was to a specific person. I really don't know when is going to be the next time when we see a burst of Beatle biopics. I mean, uh, right. there were several in 2010 around John's 70th birthday. There really weren't that many around his 80th in 2020. Of course, that was COVID. I'm putting it out there in case there are any filmmakers who go, hey, there's an idea. The other thing is, it's very easy to do Paul badly. I think Brody Sanger does a good job with Paul. They still don't give him enough to do. Right, because it's John's story. It's John and Pete through the whole film, really. Right. If I were redoing this film, I would introduce a, a Stuart Sutcliffe character at the end there. Doesn't have to be in there long. I think the biggest weakness is that they don't show the change of the years. If John is heading off to Hamburg, he's going with Stuart. (laughs) Oh, sure. That would have helped with the business of the end of the film looks more or less like the beginning of the film. You are combining much stuff, and you're combining several years into a set of scenes, but they made no real effort to make the 1960s stuff looked that different from the 57 stuff. Another fault of the film is the dramatic scene when John punches Paul, which Paul says has never happened. And, and I don't believe John ever punched Pete either, you know, which was the first part of that scene. Right. Now, the good thing about that scene is fake Paul picking up Julia's banjo. We know for a fact that the real Paul McCartney can never leave an instrument alone if, if he's anywhere <laughs> near one. He's going to pick it up, no matter how inappropriate that might be. That's true. You weren't playing this, were you? Exactly. Nonetheless, okay, so that's where we're at. We we were actually going to do two films this week, but, well, we spent too long on this one. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in it. So a nice character study of John's early childhood and his relationship with his mother. And in the next film we talk about, his father plays a more of a role. Yeah, I think you put these two works together and you get something which is reasonably more balanced and probably closer to what John's actual experiences were. Although that too has some of the same issues with the, we're just going to combine a bunch of stuff because we want to, because it's easier for us as filmmakers. So, all right, we'll be back with that next week. Next week. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. The uh, father uh, is kind of in a big debate with the mother on what to do with John and the future and whatnot. But suffice to say, and they'll go through that in the movie, but suffice to say, they split up. And John's mom is under a lot of pressure and scrutiny, the fact that she probably can't raise this child by herself. So her older sister and her husband, John's uncle, they step in. And so that's why John is raised by his aunt and his uncle, because his parents split up. Um, His father went off to New Zealand, um, wanted to take John with him, but he didn't um, because the family wouldn't allow it. And then his mom is having some challenges. Um, She ends up getting these other relationships. She ends up having other children. Um, But there's kind of all this drama taking place. And they do kind of over-dramatize it to a certain degree in the movie. But that being said, it was a little bit turbulent for him growing up. So that's why he's with his aunt and his aunt played here in the film, and his uncle. John was a lot closer to his uncle uh, than he was his aunt. It's not like he had a terrible relationship with it. In fact, one of the criticisms of the film is some of the historical inaccuracies. They kind of um, over-dramatize things. And so the film, by many accounts, including uh, Paul McCartney, has said that, you know, his 
um, aunt was a lot nicer and friendlier <laughs> than the film portrays. Yeah, she did have some concerns about him and particularly his musical ambitions and whatnot. Um, but in the film, um, as in real life, John was very, very close to his uncle. But again, he dies when he's a teenager, and that really traumatizes John. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 